Sermon on the Mount, the Lord said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then when he speaks later in chapter 5, he tells us to be perfect like our Father which is in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. It's the standard of the Father, His righteousness. And he exemplified that standard by saying how that God loves His ability to love and what His love entailed. Now, he didn't give a great description of the love. He talked about its capacity there a bit, but he mentioned that he made a connection between righteousness and love. This is the exceeding standard. It is to love as the Father loves. It is to be perfect as the Father is perfect. And then later in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll read this, turn your Bibles, chapter 22. Christ was asked a question. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 36, he was asked this question. Now the question was not asked out of a good motive. But it was still a good question. And it got a good answer. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second He's going to give the guy a little more than he asked for. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I preached it to you last week. The law and the prophets represented the standard of righteousness, the moral code that God has instituted. He said you can take that entire moral code, the law and the prophets, and you can hang it. Take every command that's given in the law and prophets, and you can hang it on one of these two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, your mind, and shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Go to that Old Testament. Find those moral principles and laws that God granted. Take each one of those laws, and you can hang it on one of those hooks. That's where it hangs, everything, so that it comes down to this principle of love. That righteousness is going to be produced in us because there's a particular kind of love that is placed in our lives. Would you say amen to God's word? You may be seated. Now, I hope you brought your Bible, and I hope you're ready to follow through this. I don't want to lose you through this, but I, I want to walk a little bit through the word of God. And uh, I want to I impress on you for a moment this importance of this business of love. First of all, I might ask, how can we define such a word? Well, I would say this to you. I surely would not want to leave our culture to define that. I would not like to go to the politicians, to Hollywood, to popular opinion, to even popular Christianity, to to secure my definition of love. I might actually suggest to you that the word is not in in any way defined for us in some little precise two or three sentence definition that you can put down in a dictionary. The word is so vast. It's as vast as the being of God itself. When we get to 1 John, there's a passage there that says that God is love. Now, that doesn't mean that love is God's essential nature and being. doesn't mean that His essential being is spirit. It doesn't mean that God is love and that love is God. We don't worship love. We worship the God who loves. It means that a chief characteristic, an attribute of God is that God is love. As much as we say that God is light or God is holy uh, or God is righteous, these are attributes. God is infinite. God is eternal. God is transcendent. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. God is love. And so 
If you're going to understand this little four-letter word, love, that we use, you'll have to know something about the being of God. If you try to understand love apart from God, you're going to mess up. You're going to go down the wrong road. It's going to take you in a path that's not going to help you. And so somewhere we're going to have to learn and look into the activity and to the, the nature of this God if we will learn about love and what it is. Now, that can come out, and we'll talk about how that's developed, but, but there are, are some that have sought to do it, and this is a, a, at least something that gets us going in the right direction, that love is the idea of goodwill. It is the idea of making choices uh, towards others that is for their best good or benefit. The difference between, a uh, major difference between Christianity and between that which is antichrist uh, is that Christianity is that which lives for the glory and the good of God. It sees that in the universe that, that we are not just a bunch of disconnected individuals but there is one creator who has created everything and he meant for his creation to be balanced and harmonic. God didn't want his creation to be out of whack, out of balance, and so that it's going in, in this direction and that direction. It's divided. It's lopsided. He meant for all of creation to be harmonized with the Creator, to work in conjunction and in cooperation with the Creator of the universe. Go against the Creator, and the creation gets convoluted, gets out, out of whack. And so God meant things to stay in a particular order in a particular framework that they were to, to live in. And so therefore, when we look at this business of, of, of good, we, we recognize that, that there is a, a, a superseding or transcendent order. There is a transcendency about life that is held by God. And if we, be, if we ever want to see the purpose of man and the purpose of what things are and the way things should be, we must always see it from God's viewpoint and from God's level. If we are looking at things only on the horizontal, we're going to get things out of uh, balance. But if we will take the vertical look and say, Lord, let me see this as you see it, then you'll get the right view and the right perspective. There are many angles from which you can view uh, an event. There are many angles from which you can view a philosophy. But I can tell you only from God's angle will you see it as it properly is. And so in this seeing that everything as it comes together and flows together, we understand that. And so in our activity, we are seeking to live our life and to make our choices and, and honor our God in a way that is for his good and his benefit. In other words, creation falls when God isn't seen as high and holy. When you have a low opinion of God, you will have a, a decadent society, a degraded and perverse society. Society will never rise any higher than its opinion of God. If it sees God as one of the gang, as I said earlier, then understand that we will never rise any higher than ourselves. If God is brought to our level, then we will never rise beyond where we are at. But if we can ever see him as the one that inhabits eternity and dwells in the high and the holy place, glory, with him that's of a humble and contrite spirit, if we can keep ourselves at the footstool and realize that he's on the throne, then and we can rise above the din of the uh, impiety that we found today. So understand that love in that sense is that which seeks the good of the object that it loves. Love has to have an object. Love is not something that just merely exists so that you can love love. God has always loved before you were created in the divine being there exists the divine being exists as three persons father son and holy ghost the father has always had an object of love his son and the spirit the spirit has always had an object of love the father and the son a son has always had an object of love the father and the spirit within the divine being that one God that we serve there exists uh, three persons if you will each possessing all of the divine attributes and yet each uh, having distinctives if you will so 
that the persons are distinct, but the being is one. And yet here is this love that exists because love by its very self, if it has no object, then it cannot be known. It is known by its activity towards the object that it is. And that's why people talk today about loving God. The problem is, is the way they want to love God is according to their definition. But God cannot be loved just anyway. God has to be loved a very particular way. And so love is defined by its activity toward the object that it's loving. And I'm telling you, God loved the world, not so that he excused it. He didn't say God so loved the world so that he overlooked its sin. He didn't say God so loved the world that he patted it on the back and said, have a good day. He said God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Oh, the love of God for this world caused him to come and give himself as a sacrifice for our sin, that the sin might be taken care of and that men might be reconciled unto God. It's when you seek the highest good. You love your wife. You'll be faithful to her. The best thing you can do to your wife is for her own good is to be faithful to her. You will injure her. You will harm her if you are unfaithful. The best way you can love your husband is to honor him and honor his authority. If you cut against that and you, and you seek to destroy his leadership, you are injuring the one you claim to love. Love has a particular activity and all of that must be defined by the one who is love and that is God. So let's, I want you to see something. What I want to impress upon you today is I want to impress upon you a couple of things. I'm going to take you through the scripture. You may make note of them. I'm only going to give you one or two in, in, in each book that I'm going to, but I am not going to in, in any way scratch the hole. But then we, when we arrive at 1 John, I want to then begin to make a connection between love and righteousness because John does that better than, than maybe anybody else in the scripture. It's all throughout uh, the passage. But looking at the New Testament, and this principle, remember, remember what Jesus has said back in Matthew chapter 5. Now, the Gospels are full of it, but we, we've already dealt with those principles. They're restated throughout the Gospels again and again. But Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. He said, I came not to destroy but to fulfill. And he then will tell us that the standard that I am going to, to bring to you is in a standard that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees met the external demands of the law. They met that in some sense of outward appearance of righteousness, but they missed the sense of the law because there were weightier matters that they had left off. And it was because their hearts were not right with God and therefore they had left off this business of being able to fulfill the law and ended up becoming law violators instead of law abiding people. And so Jesus would tell us that love is that which is going to be the fulfillment of the law so that if you are going to live by the righteous standard of God then you must have the heart that God has. You must possess the love that God loves. You must love what he loves. You must hate what he hates. If you can have his passion then you can follow his principle. If you can have his heart you can do his activity and possess his morality at least in the measure that you are capable of possessing. I begin with the book of Romans, not Acts, but Romans. It's interesting in Acts, the word love is not mentioned, but it's everywhere present. <laughs> it's present in every activity of the church, the church treating one another. The church, Acts is the church living out this principle of love, loving God with all their heart, which costs them things, costs them their lives. Oh, if you think that Christianity, if, we, if the church would have started much the way it is today, they didn't go out into that world and say, hey, you see, uh, that, hey, we got to love folks and, and, you know, we just got to kind of join with them where they're at so they can be a part of us. They didn't go out and adopt pagan worship methods and bring them in to the house of God. They didn't go down to the temple of Artemis or Diana or Zeus or Apollos, whatever it may have been. They didn't go down to the pagan temple 
temples and say, hmm, I wonder how we can get to, I, I notice how they're drawing a great crowd at their pagan temple. What is their secret? I, I know what it is. It must be the, the clothing style. It must be their worship style. It must be their entertainers. Oh, oh no, sir. They didn't copy anything uh, from the worship of the pagan gods. Oh. They didn't go out into those idol temples uh, and say, what have they got that we can get to help us? No, i tell you what they did. They looked at that world uh, with its multiplicity of gods and says, there is only one true and living God, and his name is Jesus Christ. We will not burn incense to Caesar and incense to Jehovah. Our incense and our prayers will be offered to one king and to one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ, and it cost them their lives. On a daily basis, it cost them their lives. We don't want that cost. We don't want that rejection. We don't want that rebuke. And so we join hands with the pagan and seek to harmonize the belief systems. Now watch. So beginning in Romans, Acts demonstrates it, doesn't state it, but demonstrates it everywhere. But some statements that are made in the book of Romans. Chapter 13, please. Now I'll try to go through these fairly quickly. But I want you to notice that in every book of the New Testament, with the exception of Acts, and Acts demonstrated this word appears. Must be pretty important, huh? Oh, yeah. Come on. There are several words that we use, truth. Words such as truth, that the word itself will not appear in every book. But this one does. This one does. And let's just watch a little bit about what it says. It said, I want you to see this is the aim that God is seeking to get in our heart. And we need to see what this love is. Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. A lot of big things today or, or ideas that have come so prevalent. I've been dealing with it recently on, on different fronts of that. This idea that New Testament Christianity obliterates the law. And that us not being under the law means that we're not subject to law. And that is contrary to New Testament theology. Very contrary. It is very the fact that love, God has come to do something in our life now that will bring us to fulfill the law. Love has fulfilled the law for this. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, notice he didn't just relegate it to those commandments in the ten, but any other commandment, he said, it is briefly comprehended in the saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What Paul will say to the church, if we can, let's look through. Paul will talk about, again, this business of love. Go to uh, 2 Corinthians, if you will. He will talk about 2 Corinthians. In chapter 5, he will talk about the importance of this love. In verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. The word constrain means hold together and lest it fall apart to press on every side as if in a cattle squeeze. I preached about it not so long ago, but to this church, Paul will write here, and in 1 Corinthians 2, but just I'm putting the church together in this sense, that Paul will let us know that love is that which constrains us. It's something that presses me in. It becomes my chief motivating principle in life, that I must live by that. Come again to Galatians, if you will. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, he talks about in verse 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law 
is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. My, 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 that fulfills the law. All the law was fulfilled in one word. He said, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ephesians chapter 1, the word love appears several times in this book. But in verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Here is a point that God has chosen for you in your life. God has elected you. God has chosen you for a purpose. And that purpose is, he says, he has chosen you first to be in him. He has chosen us in him. He never chose you to be separate from him. He never chose you to live your life independent of him. He chose you that you may live your life in him. In holiness, he said. He talks about that before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. God wants you to be able to stand in his presence, possessing his moral character, that of holiness. And he wants you to be in his presence without blame so that you are not guilty of sin, that you are free from its power. You're free from its enslavement. You're free from the violation of the law. Not because God has merely erased everything, but because God has lifted you out of its tentacles, out of its power, and given you strength so that you... Again, but in what way? How is this holiness and blamelessness produced? Was it produced out of some made to do it because we're fearful? Did God force it on us? Did God push it into us? Did God browbeat it into us? No. He said this holiness and blamelessness in him, but in love. So that you, this has been produced in your life because love has been the guiding principle of your heart and of your soul. Notice here again in Philippians chapter 1, Paul has a prayer for this church. In chapter 1, he he mentions to them about how he is grateful for them and all that God has wrought in them. But his prayer for this church in verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. And notice the connection, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. He said, I want your love to abound. I want it to abound as your knowledge and judgment grows. As you grow in your knowledge of God, as you grow in your discernment between good and evil, your ability to judge the true from the false and distinguish between what is good from what is evil. He said, when you grow, your love will abound accordingly and a growth of knowledge will bring an increase in a heart for God. The more you learn about God, the more you love him. Oh, yes. I'm telling you, the closer I get to God and the more that I see his glory, the more that I see the degradation of the world, the more I see the purity of God, the more I see the impurity of the world. Oh, the greater that God is in your eyes, the less the world will become. And when you see that and it raises up, I'm telling you, it'll cause you to love him more. It'll cause you to say, I'm glad I know him. I'm glad I know him, glory. You will be able to approve the things that are excellent. The idea of excellence is the idea of something that differs. How many of you know that in this world all things are not equal? We have a problem when we call good, evil, and evil, good. Calling good, evil, and evil good essentially obliterates the distinction between good and evil. It makes them, there are no opposite poles. Everything meets in the middle and becomes mush. We've done that with the genders. No longer men and women, we're something else. Hello. We just come together in this kind of mush and lose the distinction of our roles and our our personhood and we've no longer the church has lost its distinctiveness from the culture 
The church is not meant to merge with the culture. The church is not here to blend. We're not here to fit in. We're not here to find a place of comfort. We're not here to find a place of accommodation. We're not here so that we can stand alongside of and join hands and say we're all one. We're here to rise above the darkness and shine a light upon this world. We're here to stand out in the crowd and show you that light has nothing compatible with darkness. That righteousness and unrighteousness have nothing in common. That the temple of God has no agreement with idols. We're here to show that our God is utterly distinct and separate from every other God that is in this world. And when your love abounds in judgment, you're able to approve of things that differ, things that are, are, are distinct, so you can choose the better over the worse. He uses that word when he says, don't you know that you are better or of more value than the lily? God clothes the lily of the field. How much more? How much better are you? It's that same word here is excellent. The idea is that on the scale of things you look and you see, yes, God does care for the lily, but don't worship the lily. Worship the God that clothes it because God will take care of you. Amen. And God will love you. And that's the kind of God that we have. And we understand that a man has a greater value than an animal. Oh, come on now. A man. That's what happened in the, with the Pharisees. They lost their sense of distinction. And now they would let a man sit in their church because of their interpretation of the Sabbath day. He can sit there and the Sabbath day and he has a withered hand and he can't stretch it out. He can't work. He can't do what he needs to do. And the great physician has walked in the house and they would have that great physician to choose another day to heal that man. But on the same token, if it was their sheep, if it was their personal investment, if it was their personal wealth that had broke a leg and was falling over the cliff, they would have went and gathered him up and done it even if it was on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, don't you know a man is better than a sheep? Oh, come on now. We've forgotten that, but our culture is that we will put more value on a straight cat than a baby in the womb of a person. We've lost our sense of value. We've talked a lot about love, but we don't know the love. He said, this will make you sincere without offense. Colossians makes a powerful statement about love. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Colossians in verse 14. He tells us things that we're to put on. My, what powerful things they are. He tells us what things we're to get rid of. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. In verse 14 he says, And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Put on charity which is the bond of perfectness. He said here, this is a glue that is going to hold this thing together and put it together so that if you'll take this glue and you'll add it to your life, all of these other things, the anger that you put off, the wrath that you put off, the holiness and the kindness that you put on, if you will be perfect in love, he said that in itself will hold all of that together. In other words, let me tell you something. Let me put it to you this way. One of those characteristics we put on is humbleness of mind, humility. Let me tell you, if you don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will not have humility, you'll have pride. In other words, if God is not the supreme love, oh, hallelujah, if he is not the supreme God of your life so that you love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if that love is not possessed in your heart, then the character trait of humility will not be able to be maintained. You'll become proud and arrogant. You'll become your own God. You'll set your own self up and exalt yourself above God. You cannot do that. You've got to understand that there is a supreme transcendent being and his name is Jehovah and we must love him. Amen. Putting again the church of Thessalonica together in chapter 3 just quickly. Not having time. Verse chapter 3 and verse 5. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. If you don't love God, you won't look for his coming. When we have a church world that doesn't talk much about the Lord's coming and they're caught up more with their wealth here, there's a love problem. 
there's a greater love for the world. But isn't that what the Lord said? They would be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. What is that power? That power is that there's a real love. And it's more than that which simply makes you attend a house of worship. It's more than that which simply makes you go and pay your tithes and bring your offerings. No, this love runs deeper. This love will keep your eye ever set towards a future event. I'm looking for the king to come. I'm a pilgrim and a stranger. All I need here is a tent. All I here is a temporary place to hang my hat. My permanent home is on the other side. Hallelujah. I'm looking for a city. I'm looking to arrive at the new Jerusalem. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Now the end of the commandment, the very essence, the goal, the mark is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. He tells Timothy, you've got some folks in the church, they've swerved from the commandment, they've missed it, they've gotten off course. Here's the goal. The goal in Christianity, we do have a code. We do live out a moral code. We do live by standards. It's not an anything goes religion. It's not a live as you want, be as you want type of mentality. But I'm telling you something. When we bring this to people, we don't shove it down their throat. We don't try to just get them to, to adhere to some kind of standard. And that makes them a Christian. No, sir. What we want them to do is fall in love with Jesus. Oh, when you fall in love with Jesus, the world seems to fall off. Oh, come on. When you get a heart that's in love with God, you don't argue about the simple things of the word. You don't argue about when there's something preached that burns your hide up and causes you to have to measure up and change your life. You don't argue with it. You say, praise God, I'll do it. I'll do whatever God says to do because I love him. Whenever there's argument and bickering and fussing and wrangling and manipulating and trying to twist the word, it's because love doesn't feel the heart. The end is that you will work that love, that love will fulfill that law, but that love must come. It must come out of a heart that is pure. It must come out of a conscience that is clean. It must come out of a faith that is not pretended but real. This love can only be produced in a genuine atmosphere of sincerity and purity. God's love cannot flourish in the midst of hypocrisy. God's love cannot grow where there's a pretender. God's love cannot grow where there's a violated conscience. God's love cannot grow when the heart is not pure and it's caught between two loves and it's pulled this way and it's pulled that way and there's an affection here and an affection here. God's not here to share you with another God. He won't share you with the NFL. Hello. I know sometimes that comes a little close to home. But we've looked across our culture and we've looked at it as just um, activity and forgotten that these are the gods of our age. It can be for what it is. But there was, it came a time in Christendom, even at a time when Christendom was struggling. And the Pope has got power within the nation beyond the church but even in a time of decay the Pope looks out and he realized that the games the Olympics that had been going on for hundreds of years from a Greek past he shut them down because he saw how much it was attached to the pagan gods. It wasn't that he was against a man running for some health benefit, but that he saw that people went to the stadium to worship their gods. And the Olympic stage shut down for hundreds of years until they later got revived. The last century or so, a little bit more than that, they were revived again. 
but they had been on for hundreds of years, but it was the church who had enough sense to look and say, hey, this is drawing people out to do things they should not do. Oh, yes. Oh, go ahead, folks. Somebody say amen. amen. Hallelujah. Anyway, glory to the Lamb of God. Let's go over to that powerful statement in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and I'll quit meddling, all right? 2 Timothy chapter 1. And he talks about in verse 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of my Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Oh, glory. He said, There it is, Timothy, the spirit that God gave you, that Holy Ghost that abides in you. It was not a spirit of timidity. It was not a spirit of cowardice. It was not a spirit that runs and hides. It's not a spirit that tries to blend in. It's a spirit that stands up and says, I am not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not ashamed of that holiness preacher. He doesn't pastor a mega church. It doesn't look like he's been very successful. And at this moment, he's in a Roman prison. At this moment, his life is getting ready to be snuffed out. And I will not be ashamed of a man of God that has poured his life out. He ain't got a nickel probably to his name. He ain't got any marks whereby the culture is going to make a memorial to him. But he has done much for the kingdom of God Almighty. We don't mind those popular preachers to rub shoulders. But we don't want to rub shoulders with that fellow that preaches that old time way. <laughs> Hello. Somebody in this house say glory. How about Hebrews? I can skip over Titus and Philemon. I got too much to go. There are scriptures there that I can read. All right, but I, I just wanted you can read Philemon talks much about it. Uh, Titus also deals with this sense of, of love and, and that, that God has placed of the commandments to teach uh, uh, the young men and old uh, young women deals with this principle again of love and mentions it. But in Hebrews, because I'm going to run a little short here this morning on time, Hebrews chapter um, 10 it is. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 24, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. What am I doing here? Why am I reading these verses? A multiplicity of verses that I can read, but why am I doing that? I want you to see the, the importance of this principle. If you're not focusing on it in your life, if you're not concerned about your love, if you're not concerned about whether it's pure, whether it's perfect, whether it's what God wants it to be, you're going to miss it. Do you understand that? If your knowledge is not growing, if it's such that you're not looking for the coming of Jesus Christ, if you're not living in righteousness and devoted wholeheartedly to God, if you've not separated from the idols of this world, if you've not purified that love, and here if you're not such that your testimony provokes one another unto love and to good works so, so that when you're in the presence of a brother. He's not provoked to go get a lottery ticket. He says, I want to get closer to God. He's not provoked to go out and get involved in some pagan activity. He said, I'd like to read my Bible some more. I think I need to deepen my prayer life. Our life ought to have an impact upon those around us to provoke them to get closer to God. Woo. James Chapter 2, he elevates this principle, makes a statement about it that is just of highest quality. He mentions about this kind of showing favoritism to people in the house of God, giving them one a nicer seat than the other simply based on an appearance of wealth. Not on their character, but on their display of wealth. Hey, buddy, <laughs> you come to the house of God, wealth doesn't matter here. All right. It may matter in American economy, all right, but it doesn't distinguish us here. We're under the same blood. We live by the same Lord. Oh, hallelujah. We've got the same book we must abide by. Verse 8 of James chapter 2. If ye fulfill the royal law, 
according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Oh my. Here is the idea. He calls it the royal law. I like that. The royal law. This is a law. Number one, it's a kingly law. It's a law given by the king oh, and it's a law lived by the king's sons. It is a law for royalty. It's not a law for those. He said if you'll fulfill that law. In other words, if a man is in the faith, if he's a child of God, oh, and he loves the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't look at the money that he's got in his pocketbook. We look at the fact that he belongs to the same king that we serve. He's a child of God, and it's a royal principle that we follow. Peter, again, you can read 1 Peter 1 and 22. I don't have time. 2 Peter chapter 1, let me flip over there. He talks about we should add, if we have this faith, this like precious faith, 2 Peter 1, this like precious faith, he talks about you need to do something to it. In verse 5, he begins with this, and we'll list seven things. Add, he says, to your faith. If you've got this faith, if you've come to Christ, if you've given your heart to Christ and you possess the faith that has brought you into the kingdom and has brought you a new birth and you live by Christ, you're born again, you're the spirit of God abides in you and you are living the righteous standard of God. He said, then do something. Faith is not a one-time confession. It is a lifelong pursuit. Hallelujah. It is not something uh, that merely puts your name on a roll uh, or gets you down at the water baptismal fount, uh, if you will. Faith uh, is not something uh, that you use to get what you want. Uh, faith is something Something that characterizes your life. Your life is such that you are now blood-bought. You are now a follower of Christ. You have now taken your life and deposited it into the care, into the character, into the nature. Oh, yes, into the hands of God to possess you. That's what it is. Faith makes a deposit. It takes all that you have and it puts it in the bank of God and says, you invest it. You do with it. Whatever you want to do with it, God, for me, and all of mine are yours. Command me and I go. Speak to me and I live. Add to your faith virtue. Virtue is manliness. Virtue is high moral character. In other words, the first thing you do when you get saved is you determine you're not going to live a haphazard, half-hearted Christian life. You're not going to be in and out and up and down. You're not going to be treated, you're not going to be live as some shoddy so that some people can't tell the difference whether you're a saint or a sinner. You're going to add to that faith virtue. First thing you're going to determine is that you will be morally pure and that you will be a virtuous person. Glory to God. A person of integrity, a person of moral health and holiness. And you will stand in the righteousness of God and add to that. But that will require knowledge. And so you add to the virtue knowledge. You can't live like God without knowing God. You can't possess his virtue unless you know who he is. So the first thing in the pursuit of virtue will be a pursuit of knowledge. And the more knowledge you get, you'll need temperance. You will find the closer you get to God, the more you got to reign in the passions, the more you got to say no, the more you got to say, hey, I can't do this, I can't do that. And I will tell you, you have to add to that knowledge temperance. Oh, when you get knowledge without temperance, that's what we got. We got a culture that has had their minds filled with knowledge. We have plunged them into a world where we know everything that's going on all the way around the world. The problem is, is we have no virtue to distinguish between good and evil, and we've got knowledge without temperance, and we have no ability to say no and to curb the passions of the flesh. And so you got the access to the internet, but you have no temperance to avoid clicking on the page that you shouldn't click on. Temperance will require patience, perseverance. You won't get temperance overnight. You'll have to keep going at it. But if you'll stay at it, 
It'll produce in you a perseverance. You won't be a fly-by-nighter. You'll persevere. And when the finish line is in sight, you'll cross it. Glory to God. Don't get in this race to quit. Get in it to finish it. Don't get in this race to impress folks. Don't get in it to get some temporary gain from it. Don't get in it so that you can have some momentary experience. We're in this thing to go all the way. Hallelujah. Well, what if we face the fire? It's all right. It won't last forever. I'll just let it purify me. I'm going on through. Oh, yes. So we learn some temperance and we learn how to place some limits because we also realize now we need patience uh, so that we can persevere in what we're doing and stay the course. Yeah. Add to your patience godliness. Yeah. Let it be that in your life, whew, <clears throat> that people will sense God in your presence. What is it about you that reminds people of God? Come on, brother, go ahead. It needs to be more than what you say. Yes. The God with us is a real presence. Godliness is basically taking God's nature and robing it in flesh and putting it on display for the world. We're not here to display flesh. We're here to display God. Yes. We're not here to display human achievement. Yes. We're here to display God's glory. Yes. Hallelujah. Yes. Godliness. Mm. I mean, when the folks get together at the, at the job on a Monday morning, and their conversation is just about what happened at the racetrack. What happened on the ball diamond? Tell them your Sundays is filled with different activity. Woo, glory. You interject something in there that says, oh, I had a great Sunday. Well, what'd you do, bud? Oh, glory. You, you would like to know what I did? I'll tell you what I did. I got up early and I spent time before the king. I filled my mind with the word. I went to Sunday school and I heard the word of God taught. Oh, yes. And all the saints gathered and we lifted our hands and we sang the songs of Zion. And we worshiped the God of heaven. Oh, and we shouted and rejoiced in the spiritual blessings that he has made available that we have in Christ Jesus. We received strength and we gave God glory. Hallelujah. I ate a meal with my fellow brothers. And can I tell you, sir, that God was honored and I am able to come today and rejoice because my hope is in him. Brotherly kindness. The more you live for Jesus, the easier you ought to be to get along with. The more you live for Jesus, the more the rough edges ought to be sanded off. If you're still a pain in the neck, if you have no pliability and flexibility in you so that you can work with people, you can forbear. Love is not being perfected in you. Woo, glory. Come on, brotherly kindness. And the brotherly kindness, charity, that's the ultimate thing. Theirs becomes the glue that holds it all together. Take that seventh, seventh principle. All of these things, he says, now add love. If you've got love, then love will produce brotherly kindness. It will produce all oh, the patience and the temperance. Oh, and the virtue and the knowledge. And it'll keep the faith. The faith can 
only be kept when we are perfected in love. If you don't build on the faith and shore it up with the columns of love, then you will lose the faith you have. You'll be short-sighted. You'll be nearsighted. You'll forget where God brought you from. And before you know it, you'll be budding up to that same mud hole that God brought you out of. No, sir. You be diligent and add love into your life. Trying to tell you its importance. Skip first John. We'll come back to it. Jude, please. Oh my, in a time of apostasy, in a time when the when they have come alongside of us uh, and that they're in our midst and making grace a license uh, and that liberty in Christ becomes a license to live like you want to live. Uh, remove all the standards. They do not matter. He says, no, sir. You build yourselves up in verse 20. But ye beloved, building up yourselves uh, on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves uh, in the love of God right there. I think that says two things. Number one, that's the place you need to stay, in the love of God. Make sure you don't get out of that. Don't let another love in, come in and compete with your love for God. Don't let anything draw you away so that you begin to love what God hates. No, sir. You keep yourself there or you are the object of God's love because if you will stay there, it will keep you. You cannot be kept if you become someone who is the object of his judgment instead of the object of his love. No man stands against God and wins. You cannot go counter Christ and succeed. No, sir. You must go with him. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. He that does not gather scatters. Don't be pulled away from it. And the churches in Revelation. Woo! He begins with the first one. The first problem. You know this passage in Revelation 2. He says to the church, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. So, where am I at this morning? What's the point, Brother Woods? I've not told you something new. Trying to distress something to you. That the most critical part about you is this business of love. You see, there are a lot of folks today say, I love God. They mean it. And in a measure, their statement is true. What's wrong with it, though? Because we see this testimony says, I love God. But then we look at the life. And the evidence of that love is not there. There's immorality. There's unrighteousness. There's worldliness. There's ungodliness. And, and you look at it and you say, But in what sense do they love God? They love God in this sense. God to them is no different than a Donald Trump or a Nancy Pelosi or a Bernie Sanders. As long as they perceive that that God is doing something for them, They've got their vote. Oh, yeah. Right. But the minute that God does something that contradicts their passion, you're out. Right. The love they have for God is that they will not stand at your church door and tell you not to go to church. Matter of fact, they will go to church with you. They will not speak bad about God. They will thank him. They will offer praises to him. Where is the real line of demarcation then? Is it in their simply affinity for God? Is it enough that we can simply pay homage to him and that is to love him? 
is loving God simply patronizing him and giving him some time among the gods so that he can have us this Sunday but not Super Bowl Sunday. Come on, brother. Come on now. I'll give you this Sunday, God. It fits my schedule. But this Sunday is racetrack day. And God becomes a God among gods. They do love him, but not with all their heart. They do love him, but not enough to get out the bitterness. They do love him but not enough to pursue holiness on, without which no man shall That's see the right. Lord. Woo. Not enough to pursue peace with their brother. They love him, but not enough to cut off the other gods. Yeah. Yeah. They want God to share them with other gods because they're sharing him. They're sharing themselves with other gods, and they're going to share God in that sense. In other words, their love is based upon an affinity. It's based on a personal convenience. It's based on something that can bring an advantage to them. And they love him as long as everything goes okay, as long as it doesn't cut against their skin or their convenience but the very moment that God says choose oh yes except a man hate his mother and his father and his brother and his sister and his daughter and his wife and his own life also he cannot be my disciple except a man deny himself and take up his cross he cannot follow me when the line comes down when they must choose God or the world God or self, God or personal convenience, God or fashion. All of a sudden there's a conflict. And now God is pushed aside. You see, God can only be loved a certain way. I've said it before and I'm about to close. God says that he must be loved with all of your heart. That means that if somebody wants to come in, anything, anyone, any possession wants to interject in your life and pull you away, God has made a demand upon you. And if another love wants to come in there, and diminish that demand and cause you to be less loyal to God and call for you to give your loyalty first to them over God. In that moment you say, no. That's right. God first. Right. God alone. Yeah. But the wife is pulling at me, Brother Woods. Who's got the greater pool? God or wife? He says all your heart. He says all your mind. That means there will be no thought. There will be no concept in your mind that you will hold on to if it is found to be against the rules of God's word. If it goes counter Christ and you discover it, that you hold an idea, you have, a, you have a concept, you have a way of looking at something that's unbiblical, and the word has been preached to show you that your vantage point is unbiblical, you don't cling to your opinion. You trash it. Because you love him with all your mind. Glory to the Lamb of God. And you take every thought and you bring it captive. You say if you've got a thought that wants to range rove and wants to roam the range and go out there and say, I want to go this way. I want to live that way. But that's not how God wants you to live. You bring that thought in and you captivate it. And you say, no, you bow to Jesus Christ. Around here we follow him. Around here his mind is supreme. And we will love him with all of our mind. We will love him with all of our soul. 
When you can go and give your emotion in some event that is carnal, it may not even be wrong. If you can get excited, elated, and emotional at a birthday party, I'm not telling you that's wrong. Hey, buddy, if you've got 60 years, be happy about it. You know, since him being down, if somebody wants to honor you on your 85th birthday, be glad you're still around to honor. <laughs> and if you yeah. want to get happy and give yeah, praise right. and thanks, I'm not going to fault you for that. Yeah. Come on now. But if the emotion can be given there, but when it comes to God, somehow it's got to be pent up. On, somehow you got to lock it down. Three. Somehow, hey, that's a little bit too far now. Yeah. We don't want to go too far. We Come don't want to show that kind of joy to God. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I love him with all of my soul. Glory hey. to God. No, sir, let it be so that God will demand every emotion. Let it be directed unto him. Let the joy, let the joy, and let the praise come to the God of heaven. With all of your strength. I'm too tired Wednesday to make church, Brother Woods. Let me put it another way. Come on. You're willing to give your employer your best, but yeah. not your God. I got to rest up so my employer can have my best tomorrow because I need that paycheck. Come on now. Yeah. What's God? Tiddlywinks? Mm. You think he don't deserve a little effort? Yeah. Well, brother Woods, you don't get tired. <laughs> You're under delusions. You're on drugs is all I can tell you, okay? No, sir, I get tired. I, I keep a journal. I keep a daily journal. It ain't much. It'll probably never be read. If it is, they're probably not going to get much from it. I just do it for me. I keep a journal, but... I, I, I need to change it or something because I find myself writing. It, it seems like I was exhausted this day. I was tired this day. I find myself writing. I got, I got to bed. It was 12 o'clock midnight. I was wore out. Yes. And I write that and say, it was a long day. And it was from 5 o'clock in the morning to 12 o'clock at night. It was a long day. I was wore out. But it seems like I find myself writing that down more than I used to. And I'm tired. And I'm weary, but I'm telling you, oh, the load hadn't let up. The load hadn't let up. Preach it anyway. Preach it anyway. Go to anyway. Because you love God with all your strength. The last ounce of juice in your soul and your body ought to be poured out for the glory of God. I'm not going to conserve. It to be given, hallelujah. Well, Brother Woods, God wants us to be wise. Come on, preach. Good. There's an application. But there will be times love will do what is considered unwise. It isn't wise. For the man to go preach among the lepers, himself may contact the disease and many have. But love demanded that he go. It may not be worldly wise to push in a moment when you feel you're weary. But love for God will suck the very last strength out. To be poured out as a drink offering. Every time. Every, amen. David, when they brought that water to you from the wells of Bethlehem, do you realize 
that you could lose. These guys just gave their yeah. life. Yeah. They laid their life on the line. Man. You could sow uh, turmoil in your army. You could demoralize the, your army and they would lose the morale and not want to go fight for you anymore because you take something they brought to you as a sacrifice yeah. and you pour it out. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. For me, God is my deliverer. I cannot drink this. It's got the blood of man. This belongs to God. It's a sacrifice. In other words, had David drunk it, it would have directed their worship to David. But David let them know, I'm not your ultimate king. Your king is God Almighty. You risk your life for an earthly king, but you ought to give your life for the heavenly king because he is the highest and the holiest of them all. Give it unto God, for he demands your life. Would you stand and give him praise in case? Hallelujah! 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 Love, love will place demands upon you. The love for your brother will draw you to him when you're, something may have happened and your feelings oppose it. But the knowledge that this is my brother will push me, will drive me to honor, to respect, to reconcile. My love for my brother will never trump my love for God, but it will always flow out of that love. It is not difficult to love, though when you love God, it's not difficult to love those who are attached to God. Mm. so that it comes down to this what is the condition of your love is there anything in your life that is driving you upward that drives you to pursue peace among your brethren if you can be contented to remain at odds with your brethren, your love is to be called into question. This becomes the final thing. We often want to shift the picture to make it as if it's over some little standard, some little activity. I left because of this. I left because of that. It comes down to one supreme principle. Do you love? I'm going to be honest with you today. If you've got a place where truth is exalted, where God is first, where you are challenged to live a morally pure life, and truth is heralded and preached, you better do everything in your power to keep it in your grasp. Yeah.